You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to USIP. We're very excited to today launch the first in a, what will be a series of events focused on the impact of the war in Ukraine on Russia, and more particularly Russians who've been forced to leave the country because of Putin's regime and because of Putin's actions or Russia's actions against Ukraine. We're very excited today to have a panel that will discuss with Russian exiles, the new wave of exiles from Russia, the new wave of political exiles from Russia, what their situation is like, and what challenges they face, and how we should engage with them going forward to help make this a more peaceable part of the world. Um, in order to introduce that topic and to kick off this panel, I would like to introduce our partner in this endeavor, Gregory Pfeiffer, the Executive Director of the Institute of Current World Affairs. Greg. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, and it is so good to see all of you uh, here today and um, also those who are taking part online for this conversation about uh, what I think is a, a very important topic uh, and very fitting to have it here at the US Institute of Peace. The Kremlin's genocidal war against Ukraine is not only an existential threat to that country, uh, but also an attack on global liberal democracy. Vladimir Putin's neo-Stalinist regime is bent on dismantling Russian society as we knew it too, destroying institutions and relationships through violence, punishment, and fear. Many hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled since Putin's invasion of Ukraine last year, and they joined uh, and are joining uh, an emigrate community that had already been growing for years. At the same time, and for understandable reasons, the subject of Russian exiles is not much discussed in the West. Some see all of Russian society as guilty of complicity for not removing Putin. But even for the sake of Western national interests, that uh, is not altogether uh, a very helpful or useful position. Russian emigres are natural allies in the effort to defeat the Kremlin in Ukraine and help free Russia from authoritarianism at home. And it is also the largest country in the world by territory, uh, so it is not going to go away. Uh, and in any case, dismissing an entire society, whatever your views of its leadership, is analogous to what the Kremlin is trying to do in Ukraine. Being wary, I think, is sensible. There are surely many intelligence agents infiltrating the tide of Russians abroad but the emigre community is also full of Russians who have understood and opposed Putin longer than most of the rest of us. And they are the hope of a free and open future Russian society. Journalists, opposition politicians and activists, civil society actors, scholars, and others, ordinary people. Uh, 
it is imperative that we engage them, like we did during the Cold War, and hopefully better this time. So we have a stellar panel to discuss the Russian exile community and its challenges today, kicking off a four-part series uh, on Russian exiles. Uh, here with us in Washington, Natalia Lunde is Vice President of Global Operations at the Free Russia Foundation, which has been doing incredible work for years supporting exiles and helping them forge a future in free societies, in addition to opposing democracy, rather opposing autocracy at home, uh, and now also the war against Ukraine. Uh, Margarita Zavadskaya, who is joining us from Finland, is studying the emigrate community. She is a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, and she's currently focused on the political impact of Russian emigration in receiving countries with the Outrush Research Project. And she is editor of a forthcoming book, Politics of the Pandemic, Blame Game and Governance in Russia and Central Eastern Europe. Also joining us uh, online uh, from London, uh, Andrei Soldatov is an investigative journalist who has done much to identify and explain the nature of Putin's security system. He is co-founder of the Agentura Ru website together with his colleague Irina Baragan. Uh, they also recently co-wrote a terrific book about Soviet exiles in the 20th century. It's called The Compatriots, The Brutal and Chaotic History of Russians, Russia's Exiles, Emigres, and Agents Abroad. And finally, I can think of no better person to moderate this discussion than Jeff Gedman here also with us in Washington. Uh, he is the former and now again acting president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is broadcasting to Russian audiences and many others. Jeff is also co-founder and editor of our partner American Purpose, which is leading important conversations about core liberal democratic values uh, and interests. Uh, and Jeff uh, is also a trustee of the Institute of Current World Affairs. Uh, I am very much looking forward to this important conversation about the challenges facing new Russian exiles, particularly in the media and civil society as they look to establish themselves abroad and continue their work, uh, as well as what their future might hold and how we can help. The panel will talk for roughly 40 minutes, followed by a Q&A with the audience. Uh, and I, asked, uh, I ask that when asking questions, uh, please um, introduce yourself, uh, identify yourselves, and uh, uh, please stick to one question. Um, finally, before handing over to Jeff, uh, I want to thank the U.S. Institute of Peace for so generously hosting us here, uh, and also American Purpose for co-sponsoring the discussion, uh, and especially Sid Lipset uh, and others uh, who did such amazing talk, uh, such amazing work organizing this talk. Thank you, and handing over to Jeff. Greg, thank you very much for that. Um Scene setting and generous introduction, we're going to dive right in. One does, I will say, <clears throat> one does have the feeling, what do I want to say? The world is changing very rapidly, and now suddenly Russia, too. And I said to someone the other day, 
um, you know, it's very different than from two years ago. And this person said, well, it's very different from two months ago. Maybe even from two weeks ago. Things are moving so, so quickly. So I wanted to suggest if first we can get a kind of complete data set to better understand exactly what we're talking about. And Margarita, if I could do so, I'd like to call on you first and ask you just factually if we're talking about Russian emigres and the new waves, could you tell us a little bit, as a researcher, could you tell us a little bit about who's coming and where and numbers as best we know? Well, first of all, uh, I'm very flat and pleased to be here, although online, but I hope it's uh, that's the best way actually to, you know, telecommute from Finland to the United States. Um, well, when it comes to the numbers and, well, kind of factual knowledge we have on the recent Russian migrants, since February 24 last year, approximately 800,000 Russians have made the difficult decision to leave their homeland in response to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Kazakhstan, Georgia, Turkey and Armenia have hosted the largest proportion of these migrants, like 10, uh, 10 I'm sorry, 10,000 of migrants. But these number, numbers are not precise due to several glitches in the state statistics. So these numbers originate from the host societies. And the principle, principles according to which the statistic is being collected, they vary quite dramatically across different countries. But these are the best numbers we have at the moment. Um, it's also interesting to note that the European Union uh, and Israel together, they have each admitted roughly the same number of Russian nationals, around 40,000 uh, Russian nationals. Approximately the same number attempted to apply for political asylums in the United States, also about like slightly less than 40,000 people, according to the most uh, recent statistics. At the same time, a significant number of activists and journalists have found their way to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, Riga, which is in Latvia, and Berlin, Germany. These three cities have emerged as a primary intellectual hubs for Russian anti-war and pro-democratic groups, where different initiatives, uh, ideas are taking root and are growing at the moment. So these are the baseline numbers we can we can't refer to. So, Margaret, thank you very much. We're going to come back to you pretty quickly here. Natalia, to get you in early, um, it may sound mundane, but it's real life. Large flows of people. There are immense organizational, logistical, infrastructural challenges when people land in Georgia or Armenia. Could you paint a little bit of a picture for us about what people are up against? and in the respective host countries, how they manage these things? Absolutely, that's a great question. So uh, Russian exiles face three broad groups of challenges, um, as I see it. Is first is uh, actually security. So as Margarita mentioned, uh, a lot of them go to countries that do not require visas or do not require travel, international travel documents for Russian citizens, and that would be in Central Asia, that would be um, in um, uh, 
um, you know, in Georgia, Armenia, and what we are seeing is a worrisome trend where um, some of the state authorities are uh, complying with the Russian government request for extradition of those people uh, back to Russia. Um, as we speak today, there's a number of them facing um, extradition proceedings in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. So. Um, they are also there targeted by Russian intelligence services, um, so they are not feeling safe. And of course, um, in many um, host countries uh, for these exiles, they're not quite welcome. They become um, sort of um, the subject of um, societal tension and, um, and this very much, um, you know, very much uh, deserved uh, outpour of emotion related to the tragedy of Ukraine. So, um, so security is one of them. Uh, another one is their ability to reinstate their work. Most of those Russians left Russia, uh, they sort of voted with their feet for political reasons. And they, um, from our surveys, from, uh, from, from the studies that we conduct, uh, we learned that most of them want to continue uh, staying in the fight, they want to continue working uh, in support of democracy activities inside Russia to end the war, um, and um, they are doing that either uh, as volunteers or even full-time. So their ability to do this is really hampered by the fact that they don't have maybe um, visas, they don't have a path to legalization, their cards are blocked, um, and um, you know that's 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 a, and not to mention the fact that they are now uprooted. Their connection with their audiences has been disrupted. And finally, um, kind of the path forward um, upon the immediate, um, you know, as as they as they find their um, as they regroup. Um, in a lot of places, there's no path for them to uh, to stay and to to continue their work. So um, um, there's no there's no uh, EU-wide policy on what to do with exiles. There's no transatlantic decision uh, on what to do with those Russians. And it is important for the West to recognize these exiles for what they are, which is the West the the. The dem democracy's biggest asset as they counter uh, Putin's efforts um, to to attack democracy worldwide. Thank you, Natalia. L let's get you in, Andre. You've written a book about Russian immigrants during the Cold War. Let me <clears throat> let me suggest a premise to you, and you will um, amend it or correct it. And then my question: um, Inside Russia, it seems to me that I'm painting with a very broad brush. During the Cold War, um, there was a premise, not wrong, across the West, that there was a pretty decent constituency sympathetic to Western values and opposed to Soviet communism, certainly by the 1980s, in my view, but you can speak to that. And then similarly with emigres, broad brush. Today, it seems to me, inside Russia, things have become a bit more complicated, actually. And I'm asking you with Russian emigres, since the beginning of the Ukraine war, is it all complicated? Is this a monolith? 
Are these people fleeing conscription? Are they fleeing because they oppose Putin? Are they fleeing because they uh, oppose the Ukraine war? What, broadly, what makes up this group, and how do you describe the group? Uh, thank you, Jeff, for a terrific question. Uh, first of all, I think that as a comparison with the Cold War time, is not really working here because now we know much more about the people uh, being in Russia than it was like 40, 50 years ago. Back then, foreign correspondents uh, couldn't really work in Moscow, couldn't leave Moscow, they couldn't uh, visit Russian Soviet regions or republics, uh, or if they visited them, it was supervised by the KGB. And as a result, a picture the West, uh, well, got about the mood in the Soviet Union was quite far from reality. The other thing is that uh, what is important is for the mood in the society is the way they see the future. And uh, the Russian dissident, Soviet dissident movement started after uh, Stalin died. And that was extremely important. People believed that uh, come back to Stalin's uh, repressions were simply not possible. And for them, Khrushchev and Brezhnev were not great guys, but at least it was absolutely uncomparable with Stalin. What we have now, what kind of tra tragedy we, we have now is absolutely different. People expect that the situation will get worse. Uh, they expect Stalin's uh, size repressions. They see that the government and the Kremlin is constantly referring to Stalin, either talking about Ukraine or about the situation in the country. We have monuments to Stalin erected in Russia once again, and it sends a very uh, strong message to people in the country. They understand that, uh, well, now it's, uh, well, to protest, it might be even more difficult and more challenging and risking than, say, in the 1970s. Uh, which is not entirely true, but this is the perception. And of course, you're absolutely right. The situation with emigration is, uh, with the recent wave of emigration, is much more complicated. Yes, we have lots of Russian journalists, uh, including me, and Russian activists and politicians who fled the country because it was absolutely impossible to keep doing our job, staying in the country, uh, and because we wanted to keep uh, fighting, uh, and that is the reason why we left. Uh, there are, of course, intellectuals, uh, professors and people in academia who left the country because they understand that uh, in these days, Russia, it's impossible to do any uh, meaningful research because all ties with Western institutions are simply separate and not encouraged by the FSB, and you can end up in prison if you uh, conducting uh, research with uh, colleagues from uh, Western institutes and research centers. And finally, you have Russian men who decided to flee the country when the mobilization started. And to say that these people, uh, they are anti-Kremlin or they are against the war, it would be uh, a big, big exaggeration. Many of them are opportunists. Uh, they just wanted to flee because they didn't want to be sent to the battlefield and be massacred in this uh, senseless war. They understood their chances to survive. And when they ended up uh, abroad, unfortunately, but 
uh, understandably, they uh, they're trying to keep low profile. They do not want to engage in any political activities. That is why we have two sets of questions to the Russian immigration. One is ethical, is uh, and it is absolutely understandable why so many people, especially in Ukraine, are so angry when they see uh, these Russians uh, who are trying to pretend that nothing is going on in their country. They didn't flee, they just relocated. And, uh, well, it's absolutely understandable. But there, are also, uh, there is also a set of practical questions. And I think we need to remember about that. That these people, many of them are Russian men, uh, they're quite educated. Many of them are, are IT specialists. And this, uh, and right now, the Kremlin needs these people in the country. Because they have problems with technologies, they have problems with weapons, they have problems with ammunition, uh, with new kinds of weaponry, uh, like drones, for instance. And they need these people and they're trying to get these people back. So we have a very practical question here. Where we want to have these people? In Russia, contributing to the Russian war effort, uh, helping the Russian military-industrial complex, writing, as we speak, software for Russian drones, or we want to have them outside of the Russian borders. Even if they are apolitical, not really anti-Kremlin, have no vision about Russian future and do not want to participate in any kind of political activity. And uh, my sense is that we need to think in practical terms because we have the war which is going on and we need to do our best to stop this war and to, uh, to have Russia defeated in this war. So, Andre, thank you. Um, I'm going to go back to Natalia and then Margarita, bear with me. I'm coming back to you very soon, too. Natalia, do we know anything about generational differences of those who have been flowing into Europe? Some to the United States, but Georgia, we heard about Kazakhstan, we heard about Armenia, we heard about um, in terms of numbers, but also in terms of do we have any evidence of attitudes toward the future of Russia? Uh, what they see or expect from host countries in transition. What do we know about generations? So again, as Margarita mentioned, the statistics are quite uh, difficult. Uh, according to our informal estimates, the majority of these Russians are quite young. So we estimate 60 to 75 percent are under the age of 35 with about another uh, 20 to 25 percent under the age of 50. So. Um, under 10% is over the age of 50. Of course, the generational differences, I mean, they are, um, you know, they are leaving Russia for the same reason. Generational differences would be probably in their ability to adapt. Uh, the newer generations, uh, you know, they have had experience with remote work, uh, perhaps uh, in, <laughs> in dis working in dispersed teams. Uh, they are um, more savvy with the various um, uh, platforms that, that allow them to find employment uh, and the older generation is not quite uh, flexible or resilient perhaps. Um, another issue is um, maybe the thematic focus. So as I mentioned, the uh, exile, the Russian exiles that we work, uh, we work with, they are eager to uh, contribute in any way they can to end the war in Ukraine and to uh, support democratic development inside Russia. And so younger uh, exiles, 
their issues uh, are more expensive, so they um, work on LGBTQ plus issues, on environmental issues. They are more interested in building horizontal, open uh, structures, forming coalitions. But overall, I would say uh, they're pretty similar. Okay, thank you. Uh, Marguerite, I'd like to go back to you, and if I may ask, about the political makeup and the orientation. I'm playing off something Natalia said that they want many, most want to end the war. Um, what do we know, again, in terms of data or polling, of course, impressions uh, of those who have moved abroad and who want to see the war ended, who want to see the Putin regime defeated, but feel conflicted about Russia losing and what Russian defeat means for developments internally inside the Federation? This is an excellent question. Uh, I will rely on the evidence we got from uh, more than 400 interviews we conducted in six countries, Serbia, Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. And plus, I will also rely on our survey. So we conduct regular panel survey. Panel means that we interview the same people over and over again, so we can actually keep track on their movement. So this survey is not representative because we have no idea what the true parameters of the general population look like. So I have to be brutally honest with you. But on the other hand, keeping track on these changes gives us like unique information. So what, how political attitudes and general attitudes are, are changing given the circumstances. As we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, things change very rapidly in Russia, inside Russia, and also in, within the uh, Russian-speaking communities of the new exiles. Uh, let me just echo what, uh, what Natalia just said. Uh, the median age of new migrants is 30 years old. So this is the age when people are at the peak where, you know, they're kind of, you know, climbing to the, uh, this is the best time for building up someone's career, right? Um, and indeed, so in terms of political values, we observe dramatic differences in, in people's orientation. So the mo one of the most divisive issues is among these generational differences pertains to gender politics, feminism, and attitudes towards LGBTQI plus uh, issues. And in addition to that, uh, when it comes to the future of Russian Federation after the defeat or not, so well, if we're talking about the younger generation, uh, I would say like younger than 35, 30 years old, well, the share of people who stick to the unconditional support for Ukraine, even donating to the uh, Ukrainian army, is significantly higher. Because these people do not share a positive picture of the USSR. They were born later or they were too young to remember good U Soviet Union and they actually have zero nostalgia for whatever was happening back in the 70s or 60s. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we rely on the other surveys that our European, European Union uh, uh, colleagues were conducting, so we see actually very little differences in terms of uh, attitudes towards the war between the new uh, Russian speakers and the youth in Europe. So these people actually share way more in common rather than people with Russian passports. So again, generational differences play a more dramatic role rather than people's nationality. And I think this is a quite important finding. So it's utterly wrong to put people into the same basket just because they have the same red passport. So this is not as unifying as 
one may think. Margarita, thank you. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. As you're tracking flows and places, and you mentioned at the top, Kazakhstan and Armenia and uh, Georgia and Turkey, are there, have there formed or are there forming, uh, in my language maybe imprecise, civil society hubs where people are gathering apart from other places because of the hospitality of the environment or because of funding or because of partnership with other NGOs or journalist organizations? Are there hubs like this or is it more diffuse still at this stage? This is an excellent question. So the political, the opportunity structure, the political landscape of receiving societies plays a dramatic role, whether Russophone community would be, uh, would build this bottom up uh, hubs as you described them. So I, I share, I use the same term. Uh, and in this sense, Kazakhstan differs drastically from Georgia, for instance. In Georgia, despite the pretty hostile attitude towards Russians, so if any of you actually had a chance to visit Tbilisi, so there are like the slogans, Russians go home. That's the mildest uh, thing you can actually read about Russians uh, in, in, in the Georgian capital. But on the other hand, so it's one of the most vibrant community of Russian speakers at the moment who are pretty radical by the uh, Russian standards in terms of political activities, in terms of their stance and solidarity with Ukraine. So again, so the kind of hostile attitude towards Russia does not prevent these people from mobilizing. This is a very, very interesting uh, observation. It's less of true, uh, it's less to be the case, it's, it's not, not the case in Armenia, not that much compared to Tbilisi. And when it comes to Kazakhstan, well, there is a lot of self-selection going on. Those people who tend to be, you know, more apolitical and kind of, you know, they just want to leave and stay safe without engaging too much with any political activities and running any risks. So they are more likely to end up in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. So and they do not form any hubs. According to our interviews, the most common description or explanation for such for this decision is that, well, it's not allowed here. We're migrants. We have no rights. So we're not entitled to do anything in this country. And this phrase keeps repeating over and over again from one interview to another. Thank you, Margarita. I mean, I ask Andre and Natalia the same question, uh, whether you are a civil society leader or an NGO advocate uh, across the West, I'll call it the West for the United States, or a newcomer from Russia this last one or two years. In any of these countries, how does one now reach Russians inside Russia as we see a space closing and closing and closing. Andre? It is closing. Uh, you are absolutely right. But uh, uh, we still have technology. And uh, thanks God, YouTube is still available for, uh, for in Russia. Uh, circumvention tools are getting more and more and more popular. So even the so social media which are blocked, like Facebook, for instance, are still available. And people use uh, Facebook extensively. Uh, of course, there is uh, also uh, Telegram, which is uh, the most popular uh, social media in the country, uh, used both by programming bloggers, but also by, by the opposition and independent media, uh, most of them now in exile. And we see uh, statistics that Russian media in exile, they enjoy audience of millions and millions of people. Medusa has millions of people. Uh, TV doors are uh, the only Russian 
and the Biden TV channel has millions of uh, views uh, in Russia, which means that there is a huge demand for this kind of information. I think it's quite ironic that the most popular Russian-speaking media is Medusa, which is the Russian media in exile. It means that the educated people in big cities and small cities, they need this information and they think that the way to find this information is to go to, uh, to Russian media in exile. Uh, Natalia, we just heard YouTube. If that's no longer available, is that a big deal or a manageable deal? That's, that would be a huge deal, and I think we should be all preparing for this eventuality right now, developing technological tools, uh, working with uh, private companies, with big tech, to um, rescind uh, the denial of services that have been imposed inside Russia, including uh, content promotion and monetization. I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Here we are spending uh, money trying to break through to the Russian people, and yet, as Andre said, there's this uh, Russian media in exile. And by the way, uh, we can say now that uh, most of the Russian independent media uh, in the past uh, year and a half has been either forced into exile or shut down inside Russia. And uh, they have uh, built this rapport with Russian audiences for uh, decades, years and decades. They have highly nuanced understanding of Russian audiences. So um, Free Russia Foundation, my, my organization, we um, run several such efforts um, uh, throughout uh, throughout the um, exile hubs, as, as, as you call them, we call them resource centers. And uh, we are not giving up on any Russian audiences. Anyone in Russia now trying to access information uh, about the war, different from that advanced by the Kremlin, is doing that with real risk for their freedom and for their life. They are people who are going to jail for reposts of social media. So. Um, they are there searching for information, and the most um, effective uh, purveyors of such information is the Russian media in exile, and we need to uh, be empowering them. Um, there's, there's the efforts that I just mentioned that Free Russia Foundation is running is done through social media, of contacting, for example, or Telegram. And so, uh, you know, you reach out to, again, these um, exiled Russian media, they may have a better appreciation of regional, uh, of regional uh, agenda or regional, regional sensibilities of how various ethnicities perceive information. So uh, they are able to communicate with audiences in a way that does not alienate and that if it doesn't bring about a monumental change in mobilization, it shifts opinion. Thank you. I'm going to ask one more, and then we're going to open up to the audience online and in person here in Washington, D.C. To all of you, but we'll start with you, Natalia. Talk to us a moment about U.S. policy and EU policy, those things that we're not doing that we should undertake, and is there anything that does harm that we should think about carefully? If we're supporting Russian exiles and if we're supporting Russian civil society back at home. Well, first of all, uh, it is important to not think of this as a pity case or charity case. Russian exiles are a strategic asset to the West in its effort to counter Putin, both uh, in the Western support for Ukraine in this war, to end this war, to support Ukrainian victory, 
and also wider efforts of uh, global influence and to reshape the, the global um, order. So as such, it is really important uh, for um, officials in Washington, in Brussels, the transatlantic community to openly declare that it is a partner, that Russian civil society, both in exile and in country, is a strategic partner. Uh, that declaration by itself may actually immediately relieve a lot of the um, threats and tensions uh, faced by Russian exiles um, in their host countries. In, it could be Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or, let's say, Estonia. Um, so that's number one. Second, once we verbalize that, we have to make logical steps toward that end. So what, you know, this is a strategic asset, it's perishing. You have these people who ran with one suitcase and a couple of books to the forest. Uh, their uh, business, uh, their, their, their um, Visa MasterCard have been canceled by Western sanctions. And that's back to your question of what has been harmful. Uh, a lot of the, um, a lot of the um, denial of service sanctions have actually been uh, impacting the wrong Russians. So when you uh, deny Russians entry into the EU or a specific country, you, you're not prohibiting Putin's oligarchs from traveling there because most of them have double and triple citizenships and passports. When you are canceling somebody's Visa or MasterCard or PayPal, you're not hurting those people. They have bank accounts. Uh, when you are denying uh, monetization of content on social media, or promotion, uh, or, or um, promotion uh, opportunity to promote your content, you're not hurting the Kremlin's propaganda. You're hurting those people who are on your side. So that has been extremely counterproductive. So the number, so after we say this is strategic asset, we stop hurting them by actually enforcing the um, the carve-outs for human rights activists and um, and civil society that is pro-democracy and anti-war uh, on these matters. Uh, another way we can help them is by deciding and agreeing to create some sort of a mechanism to legalization of these people so that they are not worried that they have to move to a second or third country as this is happening right now, for example, with people um, looking to move from, from Armenia, Georgia, or Estonia to, to another country where they, um, they're not worried about uh, getting, you know, getting admitted back across the border where they're not worried of being, uh, having their, or, you know, like in, in Serbia, having their uh, residency permits revoked or being extradited, worse. Um, so uh, we need to think through some sort of mechanism for them to stay because the faster they are allowed to do so is the faster they get back to work. And this is what we want them to do. Thank you, Natalia. Under, we're going to turn to you, same question, things that we ought to be undertaking. Is there anything that does more harm than good? Well, I completely agree with Natalia, uh, with everything she said, but there is also some really practical questions. I'm a journalist, and I think that, of course, everybody in exile, I mean, in, in Russian journalism, can you, uh, journalist community, are thinking how to stay uh, relevant to the Russian audience. And one big question it's an elephant in the room is that to stay relevant, we need to be able to report the most important story 
of FaceTime, and this is the wall. And there is a problem that we, as Russian journalists with Russian passports, we, we cannot travel to Ukraine to cover this war, which I think is very unfortunate. I completely understand uh, the emotions, uh, and of course the emotions are around high in Ukraine, but we need to understand that the only voice the Russians are trusting right now is the Russian voice of Russian media and Russian media in exile. If they ever would want to hear what is going on in Ukraine, but always atrocities committed by the Russian army, they would need to hear it from the Russian uh, voices. So we need to be able to go to Ukraine to report this war and to tell the story. It, it is a very practical thing. Uh, and it could be fixed quite quickly, I think. So it's not only about money, it's not only about support, it's about things like journalism. If you can do that, I think we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. well, no, thank you. To you, Margarita, um, as you wish about US and EU policy, but, but say a word about Russian audiences and interests right now. And so Andre's point is well taken, Russian voices, authentically, credibly reporting on the war in Russian languages, in Latin language. Uh, is it also the case that some Russians opposed to the war get tired of hearing about the war? Well, there is a big share of people who are tired. Yes, they confess that well, they're psychotherapists, or if I mean, I'm talking about those privileged who actually have access to such services. It's not the majority. So they, yes, they claim that they are kind of tired of the agenda. But in terms of numbers, it's hard to tell because, well, if we, if I turn back to my numbers from our survey, so again, the degree of politicization remains the same. Even if they claim that they're tired, it doesn't really, you know, leave any imprint on their donations, on the degree. Uh, on the involvement in volunteering activities and so whatsoever. So they keep on going. And the number of donations to Ukrainians, for instance, they, they even increased over time. So we do not, in terms of actions, we do not observe this fatigue. Although people, of course, they say they complain that they're tired, it's, it's exhausting. But when it comes to their actions, so we see quite the opposite. And I think it's quite admirable. Thank you. Um, I trust you all agree. What a splendid panel. This is just outstanding expertise and sharp analysis and insight. Now the floor is open. We have a colleague here from the U.S. Institute of Peace who, when there's a question online, will read it so that we all hear it. And then anybody here live in the room who wants to begin, raise your hand, Greg Pfeiffer. And I will not say identify yourself, Greg, but if you came late, Greg is the executive director of the Institute current world affairs, and he is the leader and partner in this program and series. Greg, please. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and thank you to all, all the panelists. I can only second uh, Jeff's um, high, high praise. Um, I've been uh, following this issue uh, quite closely, and um, uh, I'm learning a lot here. Um, I have, with apologies, I have a, have a sort of a two-part question. One for Natalia and, um, uh, and, and, and Margarita. 
can you give some uh, concrete examples of society groups, uh, what, the sort of their names, and, and uh, uh, just give us a sense of what they're actually doing on the ground uh, of sort of furthering the issues that, that you mentioned, and what are you doing specifically uh, to, to, to help them? Um, and, and sort of a larger question touching on uh, what Andre men, uh, mentioned as well um, about the IT uh, um, uh, experts, professionals, uh, people like that who are uh, sort of uh, looking for a future in the uh, in the West, perhaps. Uh, what can uh, Western countries like like the U.S. and our allies, but also uh, host countries who are also our allies, uh, what can they be doing to uh, you know if the idea is uh, try to show these people that there's a future here rather than having to go back uh, to Russia. What specifically more can, can be done? Thank you. Thank you for the great question. So uh, Free Russia Foundation has established um, resource hubs throughout Europe. Uh, we have, our first one was in Tbilisi, Georgia. Then we had uh, Berlin, uh, Tallinn. Um, oh, we are Montenegro. Um, Vilnius, uh, we're opening a few more, hopefully uh, very soon, and uh, each center uh, serves about about 2,000 activists per year. So we're talking about 10,000 activists that they are working almost full time on this uh, on projects, campaigns, uh, dealing with uh, Russians inside Russia or um, supporting um, Ukraine. Um, the number 10,000 is only limited by our capacity. The actual need is hundreds of times more. So there's definite um, issue with resource allocation. We, <laughs> we can get a lot more um, involved. What are the types of the projects? Uh, they are, number one is uh, supporting Ukrainian refugees, providing them with um, shelter, food, with logistical support. Um, we are organizing um, campaigns to collect evidence of the war crimes in support uh, of um, what we hope for um, inevitable um, justice process, um, war crime tribunal uh, for the crimes committed um, in Ukraine. Um, by Putin's regime. Uh, we are uh, finding Ukrainian POWs and uh, Ukrainian civilians, children illegally deported um, to Russia, uh, and a lot of the times kept in secret, we're finding them and helping start the process of providing legal support and uh, hopefully uh, exchanges and returning them back to Ukraine. We are uh, supporting people inside Russia who don't want to go and uh, join this war, anti-mobilization campaigns. We're supporting counter-disinformation campaigns, talking to the Russian people. And again, there was the, the question of, you know, are they tired of hearing this anti-war message? It doesn't have to be about necessarily the war directly. It can be this is what this war translates for your, for your economic well-being, for your prospects, for your quality of life, and for the Russian society for decades and decades to come. I think that is not lost uh, and really hard to conceal, uh, which is 
which is why I think Putin is going so aggressively uh, after after this type of information and the, the sources. Andrea and I actually a few uh, days ago met in New York and we heard Galina Timchenko of Medusa discuss um, this onslaught on on the inf you know information sources in Russia and she used the number 800 correct me if I'm wrong Andre but I think she used the number of 855,000 websites blocked in Russia in the past six months along now if there was if there was real fatigue within the Russian audiences for you know about the war information they wouldn't have to work so hard that's a lot of <laughs> hundreds of thousands um, so um, did I and, and so your, your question was what we are doing. Uh, we are host, we, we're, we're trying to catch the Russian civil society uh, to stabilize them. Uh, a lot of them are um, experienced traumatic, uh, traumatic um, psychological uh, crisis, uh, distress, um, PTSD, depression. Um, we are uh, trying to channel that. We're trying to make sure they feel better, but also channel that uh, to change the situation, to um, um, you know, to conduct campaigns inside Russia, um, and definitely we see that uh, Ukrainian victory in this war is the number one condition for political change inside Russia, uh, and yet it doesn't matter whether the war ends this month or stretches out uh, for longer we still will have, as you mentioned in the beginning, we still have this 142 million Russians will have to deal with. Um, you know, uh, the, the loss of the imperial ambition, the resentment, and you know, nuclear weapons, and we have to prepare for that phase too. Thank you, Natalia. I think you want to direct that to Marguerite as well. Is that right, Greg? Sure. If you Marguerite, if you'd like to get in on that, you're welcome to. Well, first of all, I'm very grateful to Natalia for covering like at least 60%, if not 80% of what I was about to say. Thank you so much. So I would love to, to add on top the feminist anti-war resistance. So this is a quite prominent and a new kind of social movement. So that's actually never existed before. And these people are quite brilliant in advocating and actually articulating the ideas. This is a kind of a new type of public politics in Russian language. And what they're doing is quite, quite, quite brilliant, I believe. And also, there is a kind of a rise of alternative professional organizations. So among journalists, among political sciences, where I belong to. So there are like anti-war democratic associations of different professions. I think this is quite interesting development, even when it comes to IT professions. So which is believed to be pretty much apolitical, detached from you know public activities. So this kind of developments, the new norm is is on the rise, and it's it, it's it's emerging. And uh, I would also kind of pay attention to those developments. And of course, there are some even joint initiatives with Ukrainian volunteering associations, although, although they're quite rarely, I would say, uh, promoted publicly due to several reasons, because Ukrainians also actually are not particularly keen on saying that there are Russians working along with us. But as long as they actually keep it, you know, low profile and they just cooperate on the ground. So it's quite often it turns out to be quite productive and efficient co collaborations. So these things exist. Margarita, thank you. This gentleman here, you have a question? Yeah, we'll get all of you in. Let's start right there in the front row. There we are. Thank you. Uh, my name is Yuri Terekov. I'm a <clears throat> oh, political activist also <laughs> and researcher now with the Kennan Institute. 
uh, I just wanted to uh, indicate um, this problem of, I would say, uh, uh, th thank you for mentioning the feminist anti-war resistance movement. Uh, uh, I was uh, to indicate uh, I'm doing research on the grassroots uh, initiatives, grassroots activism, new movements that appeared after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I want to, in, uh, out of interviews with them, I want to indicate a problem they're complaining about is the, uh, I would say, um, inequality of in accessing media and financial support, uh, like between the old Russian opposition figures and organizations and those old uh, the, and those uh, new grassroots activists and movements and me and also media, uh, which are actually not restricted to the, uh, not restricted to this, I would say, liberal urban bubble audience of the Russian opposition, <laughs> uh, but try to reach to new audiences, reflect on new areas like feminism and decolonization and actually do most of volunteer work including helping ukrainians uh, i can name organizations like the world for ukraine uh, ukraine uh, russians for ukrainian uh, for ukraine in poland for example uh, and they often do much more work than navalny team or even kolarkovsky team with all due respect uh, I know there was some, there are some uh, uh, efforts done by the Free Russia Foundation. I know, uh, but you know, still those donor organizations they often don't trust those new, not established, like uh, uh, smaller activist organizations, and they also cannot afford personhood uh, do fundraising for them. So how can we empower those grassroots initiatives uh, in such in such a situation in the first place? Thank you. Thank you, Yuri. Andre, would you like to take that? Well, it's probably not the question to me, uh, but I would love to address a question asked by Greg about the IT specialists and what to do with these people, because it's, it is a very complicated question. It's not only about visas, and visas is a problem uh, because people who want to leave the country, they do not uh, want to, excuse me, to apply for D-type European visa because it immediately identify them as troublemakers and they do not want to do that while they are still in Russia. But the biggest question is jobs. And I had lots of discussions with, uh, with European officials and European companies and many of them cited the same problem. They said, look, uh, we do not want to hire Russian IT specialists because we have a security problem. How can we let them in our systems uh, if they do not, if they uh, still have relatives in Russia? We do not know uh, about their loyalties. Uh, they are not really political. We cannot vouch them. It's it's a big problem. So it's better not to to uh, hire any Russian uh, IT specialist at all. And this kind of perception affects not only people who say uh, are trying to make a way to Europe, but also people who live or settled in Central Asia because we cannot, just cannot work remotely for European companies. And it is a big problem. Of course, uh, the concerns are absolutely legit, but I think in this case, it is a problem of, the, of uh, European security services. It's not a problem of immigration. And I strongly suspect that uh, the real problem here is that European security services have problems of sharing intelligence and information about Russian immigration. They do not know how to check this information. And we know already of several astonishing examples of the lack of uh, this kind of cooperation. Just this month, there was a huge scandal in Denmark 
when it was discovered by journalists that a new military attaché of the Russian embassy had been asked to leave uh, the Netherlands just a year ago. And it betrays an astonishing lack of uh, sharing of information between European security services. You just cannot do that. And thinking and understanding that they have this problem, they just decided to sort of to lay all the all the uh, blame on on uh, the entire community of Russian IT uh, specialists, which is uh, not entirely fair. Let's keep going, and um, you have one online? Yes. Okay. Um, this person has asked specifically, what is Andrei Soldatov's opinion of U.S. efforts to reach out to Russian youth within Russia and in exile? Andrei, did you get that? Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, I have mixed feelings. Uh, I had several conversations with U.S. officials, and some of them told me quite openly that they believe that um, there is no real strategy towards Russian immigration this time in comparison with the Cold War when there was a strategy and the only country which actually had some sort of strategy was the United States. And this time, uh, these US officials told me there is no need for this uh, for the strategy because uh, there is no ideological battle, uh, which I find a bit strange. Uh, of course, we can't deny Putin of having any kind of ideology and all this side corruption and uh, and all these things but i strongly suspect that unfortunately there is some sort of ideology behind many people who feel on the same page with putin and we are talking not only about russians but about people in some other countries it is a big problem we need to address it we need to understand that we have some new ideological battle here even if these guys they like Marx and Engels and the other founders of the ideology. Still, it is it is happening, and I think we need to admit that. And it would be great if the United States would admit that and they would understand that this war is going to last for years, and this problem is not going away. And for this, uh, the United States needs uh, a strategy. Thank you. Can we go to the front row on the aisle, please? Thank you so much again for this event. My name is Noma Zarubin. I am a uh, student in Harvard Extension School International Studies program. Uh, my question is about Kazakhstan and Central Asia in general, uh, probably maybe to Andrei Soldatov and others. Uh, so what is the best way to reduce the influence of Russian propaganda organizations which are connected to Russian intelligence services such as Rossatrudnichstvo, for example? Uh, in other words, uh, how civil society uh, of Kazakhstan and Russians who live over there in Astana and other cities can protect themselves from aggressive propaganda on ideological level right now. Thank you. Thank you. Who would like to take that? Good I, question, I hard question, I specific question. <laughs> sure, if, if no volunteers, I'll volunteer. So um, we noticed that the Russian exiles themselves are the ones most interested in keeping their community and the host community safe. So they are, you know, they still have links inside Russia. A lot of them have even you know connections inside the Russian intelligence they're able to vet they're able to conduct the background the background checks on the new uh, the new people coming in um, you know 
pretending pretending to be exiles, but really being um, Putin's uh, agents. Um, so it is. Um, it is, you know, it is. It would be smart to use them in that sense. And uh, in communities like Germany, for example, the new influx of Russian political activists, uh, they they can serve as as an antidote to the influence, uh, the Kremlin's influence with the older generation of Russian emigrants, and they kind of can help uh, mitigate the risk posed by the Russian uh, influence operations there. Thank you. I'm going to suggest one online and then one here live in the group. Do I have one online? Sure. Um, one second. It ran away from me. <laughs> um, is there a consensus among exiles about what a post-Putin Russia looks like and what the biggest challenges will be? Natalia will stay with you for that one for a moment. We'll get the others in, but go ahead. <laughs> I love this question, uh, especially because right now we're working on exactly that project, uh, Russia's transition uh, toward democracy post-Putin. We don't know when this will happen, but the man's 70, and as we saw with uh, Prigozhin's um, riot that you know put us facing a possible um, change of regime, and um, as things are changing very quickly inside Russia with Kadyrov uh, supposedly being in coma, things can change very quickly, and we need to start. Uh, we need to start uh, planning now and involving. Uh, as broad of Russian civil society as possible for safety reasons, probably mostly outside of Russia, but there are ways to socialize these concepts. So um, we're building such consensus, it is possible. And going back to Mr. Terehov's question, actually I feel like this is what Free Russia Foundation does really great. Uh, we work with all anti-Putin, all pro-democracy and anti-war Russians and hoping that this is something that the the new factor that will uh, put us on a different level to uh, previous you know to to previous uh, diaspora organizations. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask Andre and Margarita to hold their fire for a moment so we get more questions in, and we'll, we'll come to you. You've been patient, but let's go to this side of the room. Get a couple here. If you could bring the mic, second row here next to the aisle. Thank you very much. <coughs> Daniela Galperoj, Voice of America. Hi, Jeff. Very good to see you. Hi, Greg. My question to Andrei, Privet Andrei. Uh, you, you're, you're known very well as a specialist in security services, and despite all the tone and very positive tone on, on, on the conversation here, there is still some danger of infiltrating really pro Putin, really professional people to the West. And do you know anything about the facts of, it, of that? I, I mean, from special services, from pe people who are uh, professionally connected with Kremlin and so on. And do you think what kind of cooperation could be between Western um, security services, Western governments to prevent that and to separate? Because it's very easy when, when you catch this case, when you like exemplify this and, and you, you say immediately, oh, this, this is, true for all Russians. So how to distinct and how to protect so-called good Russians from that Russians? Thank you. <laughs> well, I wish I knew uh, a good answer to this question. Unfortunately, yes, we already have several examples of uh, 
of infiltrations and it started last year we have several activists uh who actually uh moved to um to georgia to some of the countries and they uh, went to journalists and they told them that they were approached by the fsb and they were either are convinced to leave the country or the fsb was in the know that they're about to leave the country and they recruited them and of course we know only of the cases where you have activists uh, coming forward about this information we do not have the full picture here we all understand that uh, we can get more cases more problems here because the russian security and intelligence agencies uh, they are getting more and more innovative especially now when we lost so many uh agents because uh a traditional cover uh embassies uh lost so many people in some countries in europe we have only two uh diplomats and of course it's not enough to conduct any kind of uh, activities including espionage the problem here i think it's not only penetration and infiltration it's uh, something much more ominous unfortunately uh, we have all three Russian intelligence agencies involved in uh, dealing and working with Russian immigration. So we have not only SVR, Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency, and the FSB, Russian mostly domestic agency, uh, been active abroad, but also military intelligence. These people are, by definition, always act as they are in a time of war, which means they disregard completely the cost of their operations. And now it is a time of war. So we can expect more attempts of uh, assassination. We already have several cases where people uh, well, were poisoned to attack it. And uh, well, we have the case of uh, uh, Natasha Arnaud, the head of the, Russian, uh, the Free Russian Foundation. And uh, thanks God, she's, uh, she's well alive, but she was uh, attacked. And she's not the only one who, uh, who was attacked recently. I, can, I think we can expect more of these things happening, uh, unfortunately. Uh, do we have one recipe how to counter that? Unfortunately, technology now presents uh, at the same time some benefits and challenges. On the one hand, I would say that the Russian emigre community is much more connected than, say, the Russian Soviet emigre community back in the 70s or 80s because of the Internet. Now it would take me maybe one connection to reach out to anyone and Russian emigre connection uh, community because of Facebook and because of uh, the way we, we, we operate. But at the same time, it makes things very transparent. Uh, we have several challenges, for instance, how to have our meetings, right? It is a big problem uh, for journalists, how we can have our meetings and how we can make sure that uh, these meetings are not compromised and how to have meetings of political activists. Uh, it's the, a particular challenge is that some people are still able to travel between Russia and the West. And we need to do our utmost to protect these people. And again, it presents a big challenge. So it's, there is no easy answer to this question, unfortunately. So Andre, thank you. So time is racing you all, and I'm mindful of your time. Let's take this gentleman in the back in the last row. Then we'll take one online. Then we'll take this gentleman over here in the middle. And then we'll see where we are, but we're close.
Go ahead. Yes, thank you. My name is Van Famin. I'm with SIPA. Uh, my question is about the issue of uh, Russian emigres and exiles still being dependent on Russian embassies. And we know that it is very possible that the, they will be at some moment or some of them will be denied the renewal of their passports. In the EU countries, in some of them, there are some mechanisms that can be used. But in Georgia or in Kazakhstan, we have to be prepared for this scenario and, and I don't see any solutions. Do you have any ideas how we can act? Thank you. Margarita, that may be a nice one for you. Oh, yes, thank you so much for bringing this up. So as we know, and uh, Andre also wrote and uh, spoke a lot about that issue. So whatever happens with Belarusians is very likely to happen with Russians. So and what's going on with Belarusian passports? So this kind of uh, not trick, but uh, this kind of problem challenge uh, is going to happen sooner or later. So uh, I think actually Georgians are are quite well equipped with these great passports uh, or this passport of foreigners. So actually, Georgia is not that problematic as you described. So it's, I'm not saying that it's easy, but they do have a procedure. It's long procedure. It's utterly inconvenient for Russians, but this is at least they have something. Uh, when it comes to European Union, so well, the absent flaws of European bureaucracy are so complicated that even the implementation of the existing procedure is quite uh, problematic. So if I, I talked to Belarusian specialists like a while ago, and they also complained that, yes, there are some leeways, but we have no idea how it's going to be implemented. So it's uh, maybe it's a bigger issue for the European Union rather than for Georgia or countries like that. So a single country can handle these cases easy, easier, uh, more easily uh, than the, uh, the European Union. So that's but this is a real challenge. And I, I hope that the kind of you know, international expert community can come up with a decent solution, quick solution. Thank you. Should we take one online? Sure. Um, can any of the panelists comment on whether there are formal or civil society contacts between Russian exile community and Ukrainians or the Ukrainian government? Natalia? Uh, yes, uh, we've been. Um, so when my organization specifically was founded, actually, uh, our this was uh, eight years ago. Our first uh, project was actually on supporting uh, Ukrainian political prisoners, uh, victims of uh, the first Russian invasion. And so um, our second office after our Washington DC office uh, was open in Kyiv, Ukraine. And we had very robust, extensive programs throughout Ukraine working with Ukrainian civil society. Um, as expected, um, a lot of these connections, and not just for us, but for everyone, um, took a huge hit after the war started. Um, and it was important for Ukrainian society, uh, for mobilization purposes, to, you know, to, to mobilize society uh, and really separating us versus them. Uh, but we see going forward, um, it is critical again to work with Ukrainian civil society um, together to to because so 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 many of our skills and understanding is complementary in what we're trying to do we're trying to do the same thing we're trying to uh, bring victory to ukraine we're trying to make sure that once the war in ukraine ends the peace in europe is sustainable and that's not possible without democracy in russia so we see uh, ukraine uh, ukrainian people and actually everyone globally, internationally, as our allies. Thank you, Natalia. I'm going to turn to you, Andre. You said earlier in the conversation today 
that uh, one would need reporting on the war from inside Ukraine by Russians in Russian language. But as the question implied, it's not so easy. And relations between Russians and Ukrainians on any level are not so easy. Could you speak to that and maybe tell us what you experience in this, in this realm? Yeah, the thing is that there are several levels of this problem. Uh, on, on one level, uh, you have a cooperation and relationship between Russian and Ukrainian journalists, which is absolutely fine. We've been known each other for years, or if not decades, we trust each other. And even as we speak, there are several projects going on, uh, joint projects uh, where Russian uh, journalists are helping Ukrainians for, uh, and Ukrainian journalists, for instance, in uh, investigating war crimes, because part of this problem when you have a war crime committed is to identify people who are behind this crime. And that means understand as a military structure, security services structure, these kind of things. And here you have skills of Russian investigative journalists who know how to do data mining, who know how the Russian uh, power ministries work and how security and military work. Uh, so this is already existing and I think it's absolutely brilliant. But there is also a political level. Uh, if you have a Russian passport and you uh, you're trying and you're applying for uh, for visa these, uh, these days and also for an for a military accreditation, uh, unfortunately, what we see it's just not possible to get these documents and to get into Ukraine if you have a Russian passport. We do have several examples of Russian journalists who are reported. Uh, from uh, this war, but it was only in uh, two uh, first months of the war. Uh, we have an example of Elena Kostichenko, Nova Gazeta, and Lili Yeparova uh, at Medusa, but we are talking about March, April 2022. Now it's unfortunate, unfortunately, but it's, it seems to that it's just not possible. I don't know what should be done to change. Um, the political attitude. And of course, there is uh, finally the, um, the third level is uh, public opinion. Of course, now, if you are, I assume, because I, well, last time I've been in Ukraine was quite a while ago because of this war, uh, I, I assume it would be really tricky for, for, uh, for a Russian journalist uh, with a Moscow accent, for instance, to to be in Ukraine to talk to civilians. It would be a, a very difficult challenge. I reported several wars and terrorist attacks, and but I think what, what is going right now is absolutely uncomparable with this kind of experience, because now you've, you, are the, you are on one of the sides of this war, uh, which, is, which, is, uh, which makes things very, very challenging. But still, I think it's possible. Still, I think it's important to think and talk about this because it is a way to talk back to, to people who are still in Russia. Andre, thank you. We're going to take one more from the audience and we're going to take your question. And here comes the microphone. Right there. It's Eric Lohr from American University, and I just wanted to give a call out to uh, something I'm involved in. It's called the Russian Global Academy. 
And uh, the aim is kind of a, a large one to try to create a community among displaced scholars, Russian-speaking scholars around the world. And it's, uh, it's off to a very difficult start. This is a big task to try to do it, but we're gonna, we're gonna do what we can. And in the, in the short run, we're giving short-term grants and um, funds to go to, uh, to conferences and uh, pursue research by other means other than in Russia. And I was wondering if you guys have heard of other initiatives on the professional and academic side of things. We're, we're restricted to just social sciences and humanities, but I wonder if there are other projects like this underway. Great. Thank you, Eric. Before they respond, would you say a word about where one finds out how to apply for uh, these short-term grants? Yeah, it's, you can just Google it, um, uh, Global, um, Russian Global Academy, and it's at George Washington University, run by Marlene Laruel and funded generously by the U.S. Russian Foundation. Terrific. And we have re Terrific. represented right here. Okay. Who would like to... Uh, respond to that last question? Well, there's uh, Free Russia, uh, not Free Russia, Free University, uh, which is actually um, the first um, university uh, that brings together exiled scholars, exiled uh, university professors to provide um, education, uh, university level education uh, to all Russians. Um, in disciplines maybe that are not uh, possible to teach inside Russia. Uh, I know of a second program uh, that Jana Nemtsova is currently, uh, has just uh, gotten accredited in uh, Germany. Maybe Andre Margarita can add to that. It's in the Czech Republic, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, yes, there is a big uh, initiative. Um, in, in Prague, the the actual the problem is the again the visa regulations of the Czech Republic. So those Russian students who actually got admitted to the pro program, they uh, are having troubles entering the European Union. Even those uh, applicants with dual citizens citizenship, like for instance Israel and Russia. So one person actually was denied entry based on the second unreported Russian citizenship. So, uh, well, the problem exists, but, you know, it's, it's a real difficult to, to uh, take advantage of it, especially for those who are, are coming from Russia. So, and uh, following on this, well, scholars at risk, they sporadically provide some assistance, but of course, Ukrainians are the first priority and Russians and Belarusians are coming, you know, not, they're not even next in line, I would say. Say, uh, this is a big of a problem. So there is no, uh, I would say, uh, programs uh, whatsoever that would target Russian scholars at the moment in the European Union, apart from the, uh, the ones already mentioned. Margarita, thank you. I'm going to let that be the last word from the panel. I'm going to tell you, you three, Margarita, Andre, Natalia, that was superb. That was as good, challenging, rich, and stimulating a discussion on the subject as I've heard. I want to thank Greg Pfeiffer for getting us all together and leading us in this. Congratulations to all of you. Thank you for that. And Greg, we're going to offer you final words, please. Thank you. Do, it, uh, do we have the microphone on? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for moderating um, so so expertly, and uh, and all our panelists. Um, I can again only second uh, Jeff. This is uh, really really stimulating and important discussion. Uh, and thanks to you all uh, for coming uh, here uh, to the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, joining online, and thank you to USIP for uh, hosting us here. It's been really really terrific. Um, just
just a word about our future panels. Um, we will have three more on Russian exiles here. The next one will be in uh, two weeks' time uh, about the Russian political opposition in exile. Uh, that'll take place on Thursday, October 5th at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, panelists will include Ekaterina Shulman, uh, Vladimir Milov, and Sergei Alexashenko. So please join us for that. Um, they'll be discussing which are the main exile political groups and how they're trying to oppose Putin's Kremlin from outside the country. Um, then we will discuss Russian scholars uh, in exile. Thank you for, for raising that very important uh, subject, Eric. Uh, that'll be on Thursday, November 16th also uh, at 10 a.m. Eastern. Um, how are Russian academics abroad trying to keep teaching, researching, and preserving Russia's intellectual capital for future generations? And finally, in January, we will discuss uh, the question on all of our minds post-Putinist Russia. What are the plausible scenarios? What roles should the US and other Western countries be playing? And what lessons have we learned, if any, from the 1990s? Uh, please stay tuned for the exact date that is uh, still to be determined. Uh, thanks you again, and uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.